Philip Parham tells the story of a rich businessman who was disturbed to find a fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat. Why aren't you out there fishing, he asked. Because I've caught enough fish for today, said the fisherman. Why don't you catch more fish than you need, the rich man asked. What would I do with them? You could earn more money, came the impatient reply, and buy a better boat so you could go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase nylon nets, catch even more fish, and make more money. Soon you'd have a fleet of boats and be rich like me. The fisherman then asked, Then what would I do? You could sit down and enjoy life, said the rich businessman. What do you think I'm doing now? The fisherman replied as he looked serenely out to sea, enjoying the view. In this achievement culture of ours, we have our priorities all wrong because we are never satisfied. We want what others have, and we think that everyone in the world has the same desires we do. There's a saying, as a rule, man's a fool. When it's hot, he wants it cool. When it's cool, he wants it hot, always wanting what is not. And therein lies the problem. Christian or not, we fall into the trap of wanting what others have, thinking that if we have what they have, then our lives will somehow be better. This is the sin of coveting and what we want to address today. This sinister sin is so important to identify and deal with because if not, it can lead to the destruction of our lives. So important an issue to deal with that the Lord God addressed it in one of the Ten Commandments. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, to see what God says about the sin of coveting. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. I read now verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. In the last of the Ten Commandments, God instructed the Israelites not to long for, earnestly desire, envy, or lust after what is legitimately belonging to others. They were not to covet what was not theirs. Perhaps the reason behind this commandment was that covetous people will break all of God's commandments in order to satisfy the sinful desires of their hearts. As Matthew chapter 15 verse 19 reminds us, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. My friends, the root issue of covetousness is, of course, sinful envy, desiring what someone else has, an attribute, an item, or a certain physical feature. But innately, it is to satisfy our desires. We covet because we see something that someone else has. We like it. We want it. It pleases us, and we think it will make us feel good to have it. And so to satisfy our desires, we think of ways or plot to get what we want. We can even secretly covet without anyone ever knowing, although God does know the intent of our hearts. And that secret desire will reveal itself in our words and actions. You see, if we don't control our desires with the Holy Spirit's help, the extent of what we will do to get what we want may include breaking the law, doing things that are morally or ethically wrong, or simply displeasing God. But we don't care as long as we get what we want. For some, it doesn't matter if I can afford something or not. 
When I want something, I want something. And I don't mind going into debt or maxing out all of my credit cards, even if I know there's no way I can pay it back, just for the temporary pleasure of satisfying my desires to have what I want. You see now the extent of what we will do to get what we want. And this is our first biblical principle as it relates to why we covet. And it is this, number one. We covet to satisfy our sinful desires. We covet to satisfy our sinful desires. That's why there's this 10th commandment to clearly show what God thinks of this heart issue. He calls it a sin. As with any issue, it is important for us to first identify the root cause of why we covet so that we can address it, and it is because of our sinful desires. We all have many desires, most of which are certainly not godly or spiritual, and intrinsically, our desires often come from selfish motives. When we see someone with a new car or a new watch or the latest phone or a new house or the newest toy or device, our instinctive response is not, great, he has something new, I'm so happy for him. They so deserve what they have. Instead, our heart thinks, how come I don't have one if he has one? And if he has one, I want one as well. And if I'm going to get one, I want it to be bigger, better, and newer than the one he has. Why? Because I'm better than that person. So I need to show through what I have that I'm better than him. You see, sometimes people want what others have, not because they really want it, but to prove they are of equal value and importance as the other person. They've equated the worth of a person with material possessions. You see, a cheap watch and an expensive watch do the exact same thing. They both tell the time. But why do you want the luxury watch? Because it is associated with success. How fast can a sports car versus a regular car go in Manila traffic? The same speed. But for many, it's not because they are car enthusiasts that they get the high-end car. It's because it is a status symbol of their perceived success. Now, we're not talking about the quality of craftsmanship. I understand about the quality craftsmanship of luxury goods and items. But many people covet what others have not because of better quality, but because of their own insecurities and their need and desire to be thought of as having succeeded in life. As Adam Holtz notes, luxury brands are selling you a lifestyle, not just a product. After years of working in the marketing industry, I've come to realize that the secret to marketing luxury brands lies not in the product itself, but in the status that it represents. Allow me to explain. As Seth Godin once said, people don't buy goods and services. They buy relations, stories, and magic. And this is especially true when it comes to luxury brands. Customers who buy luxury goods are not just purchasing a product. They're investing in a lifestyle, a social status, and a sense of belonging to an exclusive club of people who can afford to buy these brands. Think about it. When someone buys a Gucci bag or Ferrari car, they're just not buying a functional item to carry their belongings in or drive them from point A to point B. 
They're buying into a story, a vision, and an image of themselves as successful, stylish, and elite individuals who are able to afford these luxury brands. They're buying into the idea of luxury, which is a symbol of wealth, taste, and exclusivity. This is why marketing luxury brands is not just about promoting the product features or benefits. It's about creating a lifestyle brand that people aspire to be associated with. It's about telling a story that resonates with the target audience and reinforces their desire to belong to a certain social class or community. So the next time you see a luxury brand ad or product, remember that it's not just about the product itself. It's about the story, the vision, and the image that it represents. You see, my friends, even secular salespeople and marketers understand human sinful desires that drive covetousness. Also, often our desires which leads to covetousness is because we think we deserve or are entitled to what we don't have but others have. Historically, the Israelites had a propensity to feel like they deserved God's blessings as His chosen people. They thought they deserved to have the good things in life after being freed from slavery in Egypt. In their wilderness march to the promised land, they wanted what the pagan people around them had to the extent that they worshipped a golden calf right after they were freed from slavery by God because others had it. They quickly forgot God's provisions and faithfulness. So they complained and complained, including about the free food that God gave them every day. They kept telling the Lord, we want this, we want that. We want what the other peoples of the land have. And it extends throughout the history of Israel, even wanting a king because everyone else around them had one. Remember the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7? when after defeating and capturing the city of Jericho in the Promised Land, God specifically instructed the soldiers not to take anything. But Achan did not obey and took some of the plunder. And because of Achan's sin, God caused the Israelites to be defeated in their next battle in the city of Ai. When they found out it was Achan that had sinned, he confessed in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21 with these words. Joshua chapter 7, verse 21. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. Notice his confession that coveting began with his eyes. When I saw, went deeply into his mind and heart, then I coveted them and ended up in his hands, I took them. And at the end, the result was his death. This is a warning, my friends, that our sinful desires cause us to covet. It's not just innocently wanting what someone else has. Underlying all of this is our fleshly desire to prove our significance or thinking we deserve or are entitled to it. And as with all desires, we will do everything and anything to satisfy it whether it's to satisfy a sexual desire or a food craving, you and I know the lengths we will go to just to satisfy our cravings and desires and sadly disregard what it will cost us and not care about the regret later, if only to satisfy that desire. 
but at the end, it is not worth it, as Achan would testify if he could today. Jesus, knowing how we are, clearly warns us in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Luke 12, 15, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Will we ever learn, my friends? Our life is not defined by what we have and possess, and other people's worth and life is not defined by what they have. So do not covet. Now turn back with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Here the Lord describes three specific areas we're not to covet. Let's note them. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The first thing noted not to covet is the neighbor's house and his wife. I would group this as not coveting someone else's family. Remember, there are no perfect families, just like there are no perfect organizations or even perfect churches. Each family has problems. Each family has issues. Each family has sinful secrets, as each member of the family is a sinner. I taught children for many years in the church I grew up in. I especially love teaching four- and five-year-olds because they are so honest and unfiltered. They will tell you everything about their families and about their family secrets, and you don't even have to ask. At first, I was shocked that some of the most outstanding families I thought at church were not so perfect. They were normal, just like mine. Dad yells, mom gets upset, siblings fight. But I realize now it's normal to have imperfect families. So there's really nothing to be envious of or to covet in other families. You see, the danger of coveting someone else's family is as you think that someone else has better parents, better siblings, a better family, it's natural you will begin to look down on your own family. Have you ever thought this as a child? Why can't my parents be more like my friend's parents? Why can't my parents be as cool, as lenient, as kind and generous as my friend's parents? Or on the flip side, as a parent, I'm sure you've thought this. Why can't my children be like my friend's children? Why can't they be as obedient, respectful, or academic and sports achievers like other children? You see, the danger is that now your family is no longer special and unique. You feel that you deserve better, or somehow you didn't get what you deserve by being placed in your family. So you start to feel bitter, angry, frustrated, and hopeless, all the while forgetting that the family God has given you is the family He wants you to have love and value. Coveting other families will cause you to no longer love, appreciate, and celebrate the uniqueness of your own family. Also, Remember, just because someone has an amazingly large and beautiful physical house doesn't mean there's joy and happiness in the house. I've stayed in many homes that are very large, but relationally cold inside. And I've lived in many small homes where there's warmth, joy, laughter, and love. Further, as this verse implies, just because someone's wife or husband seems on the outside to be kinder, sweeter, nicer, or physically more attractive, doesn't mean they're the right fit for you, or they may not be as they seem. Their outward facade may be hiding the fact that they are battling depression, insecurities, sadness, negative body image issues, 
and are not happy. These seemingly beautiful and stable people may be scrolling through IG feeds and social media reels and feel self-loathing as they feel inadequate comparing themselves to photoshopped images and unrealistic realities. Think about all those commercial models who seemingly are outwardly happy but are inwardly very depressed with no joy in their lives. So there is no need to covet someone else's family looks or lifestyle. They may look great outwardly, but inside they may be a mess. Focus on your own family and try to see how you can make it a more Christ-like family. Now look with me again at verse 17. You shall not covet his male servant nor his female servant. The second thing noted in this verse is a neighbor's servant's. This was a coveting of the quantity and quality of someone else's servants. I would group this as not coveting someone else's business or occupation. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting a better job with better pay or more opportunities for job advancement. But to constantly wish you were working somewhere else or to have other work responsibilities or to have another work team or boss will cause you not only to be unhappy, but make you less committed, motivated, and faithful to the current work situation God has put you in. Of course, in whatever situation the Lord currently places us in, we have an opportunity to live out a greater purpose, which is to share Jesus in the environment He has placed us in, even in a difficult job situation. The practical reality is that while your current work is hard, it may not be better in another job situation. You may not be getting paid as much where you currently are, but compared to the other jobs that you so desire, you have less stress. You don't have as long of a commute, and you can enjoy a healthy work-life balance leaving work at 5 p.m. While other people are working 80-hour weeks, have a three-hour commute each day, and get four to five hours of sleep each night, and they may be earning more money than you, but they are ruining their health in the process. Leo Tolstoy once wrote a story about a successful peasant farmer who was not satisfied with his lot. He wanted more of everything. One day, he received a novel offer. For 1,000 rubles, he could buy all the land he could walk around in a day. The only catch in the deal was that he had to be back at the starting point by sundown. Early the next morning, he started out walking at a fast pace. By midday, he was very tired but he kept going, covering more and more ground. Well into the afternoon, he realized that his greed had taken him far from the starting point. He quickened his pace, and as the sun began to sink low in the sky, he began to run. Knowing that if he did not make it back by sundown, the opportunity to become an even bigger landholder would be lost. As the sun began to sink below the horizon, he came within sight of the finish line. Gasping for breath, his heart pounding, he called upon every bit of strength left in his body and staggered across the line just before the sun disappeared. He immediately collapsed, blood streaming from his mouth. In a few minutes, he was dead. Afterwards, his servants dug a grave. It was not much over six feet long and three feet wide. The title of Tolstoy's story was, How Much Land does a man need? My friends, in the race to get on top of the corporate ladder or to be the biggest and best in your industry 
or maintaining your market positioning. Don't fall into the trap of coveting others' successes. You may literally die trying to achieve what you can never achieve. I'm not saying don't work hard and just settle for mediocrity. God teaches us in the Bible to do our best for Him. What the Bible teaches is if we are living our lives only for more, coveting others' businesses and occupation, we will live very unhappy lives. I read again in verse 17. You shall not covet his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. The third thing noted in verse 17 is a neighbor's ox, donkey, followed by a catch-all, everything else that your neighbor has. I would say this is not coveting someone else's material possessions. I think this warning speaks for itself because we simply want the material objects, toys, gadgets, cars, clothes, house, computers, etc., that someone else has. We think that for life to be fair and for God to show His equality, then we should also have what others have. But as we've often said, life isn't fair. If we want God to be fair and give us what we deserve, then we shouldn't have salvation because someone dying in our place is not fair. Death is what we all fairly deserve. You see, in our desire for fairness in life, as evidence through the lenses of material possessions, we will not get it and only be left frustrated and angry. When we were young, us siblings had a rule, especially when it came to splitting food, like the last piece of a cake. Now, I don't know if you have this rule or not in your families. Whoever cuts the piece, the other gets to choose first. This ensures that the one cutting is exact in his division. Sometimes, even the fruits on top of the fruitcake, each has to be divided equally. Now, you may think this is ridiculous, but it shows our human desire to get what we believe we fairly deserve. But this sort of desire for fairness is not realistic in life. There will be some whom God sovereignly decides to give more and to some not as much. But remember, what He gives is always enough for our needs. In the 5th century, a man named Arsenius determined to live a holy life. So he abandoned the comforts of Egyptian society to follow an austere lifestyle in the desert. Yet whenever he visited the great city of Alexandria, he spent time wandering through its bazaars. Asked why, he explained that his heart rejoiced at the sight of all the things he didn't need. My friends, how many of us go to malls or scroll through online stores and say, praise God, I don't need any of these things. Your response when you enter a shop is a gauge of how susceptible you are to coveting what others have. There are things we need, and there are things we don't need. What are the things you covet that you really need? I venture to guess very little. It's mostly wants that will not necessarily make you a better person. That's why the Bible warns us about coveting material things. As Benjamin Franklin once said, contentment makes poor men rich. Discontent makes rich men poor. Since coveting people's lives and things is difficult to control, how do we deal with it? The biblical solution to this problem with the help of the Holy Spirit is to be content. 
Contentment is being satisfied with what God has blessed you with, regardless of what it is, whether your looks, your family, your material possessions, your job, your life, your school, and so on. Sadly, most people simply aren't content. For example, often people who are darker in skin color want to be lighter, so they use lightening cream. People who are lighter in skin color want to be darker, so they go to the tanning salons. People who are thin want to be fatter, and people who are fat want to be thinner. Those who are working can't wait to be retired, and those who are retired wish they were still working. Those with a job daydream about how it would be like to have another job. Workers desire to be in management so that they can be the boss, but those in management wish they were common workers so that they can leave the work responsibilities at the office when 5 p.m. comes around. Those who are married are not satisfied with their spouse. They wish they were still single, enjoying the freedoms of the single life. And many who are single can't wait to be married for the companionship. How about in the school setting? Those in a school wish their school can be like another school, while those in other schools wish they can be like our school. Churches are not immune from this. Those in this church wish we were like another church and offer this or that program, while those in other churches wish they were like our church. This feeling of dissatisfaction with life even relates to the superhero genre. Superheroes want to be human and not have the responsibilities that come with their powers and just want to live a normal life, while humans wish they can be superheroes with special powers and abilities. At any stage of our life and life circumstances, we constantly have to deal with this issue of contentment. So the question I ask you is, are you satisfied with life? Are you content? And if you are wanting more in your life, ask yourself, is that more for you or more for God? Look what Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Apostle Paul said he has learned to be content in whatever situation he's in because it is what keeps at bay the sinful desires in him that will lead to covetousness. And even for him, it was not easy. He needed the help of the Lord in this matter. That's why he writes the often quoted verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in this context. This verse is not in the context of you keeping your diet or exercise regimen. It is in the context of someone who is trying to be content in every situation. My friends, with the Lord's help, you can come to a place of settlement and contentment with your lot in life trusting that God knows what He's doing when He gives you what He has. You see, the second biblical principle that deals with coveting is simply this. Number two, the solution for covetousness is contentment. The solution for covetousness is contentment. To be content, don't get caught up in the comparison game. If someone has something that is newer or has a better updated model, are you happy with what you have? Or do you now suddenly crave the newer item 
or that which you don't have? Isn't it true that you're happy and content with an iPhone 14 until the iPhone 15 comes out in a few weeks? Or your friend has one? Or are you content with a Samsung Galaxy S23 until the S24 comes out early next year? Why does this happen? Because you compared. Comparing causes us not to be satisfied and content. Students, especially high-achieving ones, love to compare grades. Business folks love to compare their compensation packages. Athletes love to compare their statistics. Again, it goes to a heart issue. We compare because it is the basis by which we think we are better than someone else. For example, if you get a 99 on a test and your friend gets a 98, then you become so proud because you think, I'm smarter than my friend. I'm better than my friend. I got one point over them. But if your friend gets a higher score, it's because they cheated. My friends, if you're going to compare, learn to compare down instead of comparing up. Remember the saying, I had no shoes and complained until I met a man who had no feet. At its core, contentment happens when you trust God. You trust His sovereignty to be okay with what He gives you from His infinite resources. And you trust His wisdom to know just what you need so that you won't be led astray if He gives you too much. Because honestly, who are we to demand of God what is all His and ultimately belongs to Him? Is contentment possible? Absolutely. You know, there are some evenings I'm sitting in my old bed with three pillows behind me propping up my back because my pillows are so worn and flat, which is the way I like them, with my wife next to me, and she's cradled on my left arm watching her K-drama, and my right arm is free to reach to the side table next to my bed, where sits a glass of Dr. Pepper soda with lots of ice and a big bowl of Lay's barbecue potato chips. I'm wearing an ugly T-shirt with holes in them and plaid cotton shorts, which are my favorite because they're the ones that have been washed about a thousand times, and they're so soft. And there on my lap is my phone as I watch some YouTube videos or Netflix movies. And at that moment, I think to myself, what more do I want? I'm so comfortable, content, and happy. I haven't hit millionaire or billionaire status, but I'm content. I don't have a sports car or a Rolex watch but I'm content at that moment. If someone offered me expensive gourmet veggie chips, baked, not fried, I would refuse because it wouldn't taste as good. If someone said, wouldn't it be better if you had an expensive Ogawa massage chair to sit on while watching your shows, I would say, it's okay. This way, I can cradle my wife in my arms. If someone says, wouldn't you like a 4K TV to cast that which you're watching onto something bigger, I would say, it's okay. I'd rather have my hand in a chip bowl than holding a remote control. If someone offered me a designer silk pajama, I would say, no thanks, I'm okay with my soft t-shirt with holes. You see my point? As with coveting, contentment is a state of mind and an issue of the heart. If I'm satisfied with what God has given me and trust that what He has allowed me to have is perfect for me, then I will be in a state of satisfaction and not crave for what is not mine. 
The third biblical principle is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10 tells us this. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows." Here Paul writes to young Timothy and says that if a person is godly and cultivates a spirit of contentment, then that person has already gained great spiritual wealth. Because in life, we enter into life with nothing, and we will leave this life with nothing as well. We can't take anything with us. Therefore, we should be content with what God has given us. If He has already provided the essentials of food and clothing, because we can't take anything with us when we die. The question should then be, what more do we want and why? Why do we want what we want? This goes to the important question of motive. Because if this question of motive is not settled, then verses 9 to 10 tells us the desire to be rich and the love of money will cause people to fall into sinful temptations, which leads to many sorrows in life and ultimately to the destruction of their lives. And we see this play out every day in the lives of people all around us. You see, my friends, when God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf as an act of His great love and grace to people who don't deserve it, it gave to people who came into the world and will leave the world with nothing, something so great, valuable, and priceless that money cannot buy it. Therefore, if you don't have anything nor deserve something, but have been given something priceless, you and I should naturally be content and not ask for more because we've already received so much. My friends, God does not owe us anything. Let me repeat that. God does not owe us anything but He has graciously given us all that we need. What more do we want? In the same way, our desires should have been quenched by receiving the perfect gift in the person of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe this to be the perfect gift, let me ask you this. Would you trade anything you want for the gift of Jesus Christ and the eternal life, joy, peace, hope, salvation, and so much more He offers? Would you rather have a Bugatti sports car or Jesus? Would you rather have a mansion in Forbes Park or Jesus? Would you rather have a billion dollars or Jesus? Settle this question now or you will never be satisfied. You see, our third biblical principle to help us with this issue of coveting and contentment is this, number three. View desires and contentment through Christ-centered lenses. View desires and contentment through Christ-centered lenses. When you focus your sights through the filter of Jesus Christ, then your desires are kept in check because what more do you want when you have the best gift in the person of Jesus Christ? And it keeps you content because what more can you ask for or demand when you, who have nothing, have already been given everything in the person of Christ? My friends, God's redemptive plan through Jesus Christ gives us full satisfaction in life because whatever our circumstances and what we have or don't have, 
we understand that God provided His only Son for us. That's why 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is our greatest need in life? Is it to be happy? We may long for a change in our circumstances, and sometimes that's what we get. But a changed life is our deepest need. Changed circumstances may make us happier, but a changed life will make us better, for it will make us like Christ. You see, with Christ in our lives, instead of focusing on what we do not have and focusing on what we want, our perspective changes to that of what we have already received, salvation, eternal life, purpose, victory, and so on, and therefore should no longer crave after the things of this world, but we now have a new reason for why we live this life. My friends, view your desires and contentment through Christ-centered lenses. Let me end with a story. A number of years ago, there was a popular program called The Goldbergs. In one episode, Jake Goldberg came home for supper and excitedly told his wife Molly about a great idea he had. He wanted to go into business. Molly had some money put away anticipating just such a thing, and she gave it to him. As they sat at the dinner table, enthusiastically discussing the future, Jake said, Molly, someday we'll be eating off golden plates. Molly looked at him and replied, Jake, darling, will the food taste any better? And that's true, my friends. Will the food taste any better to have the things that you want? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to have nice things, but when our goal in life is about attaining or having those things, then we will never be content with life. It doesn't matter if you can afford to buy and eat the best A5 Wagyu grated beef. If you are sick and can't eat, what does it matter the grade of steak? There's a saying, you can only sleep on one bed at a time, and you can't buy sleep. So would you rather have a great bed or good sleep? Think about that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 warns us that in the last days, men will be covetous, lovers of things rather than lovers of God. So we need to be careful and remember, number one, that we covet to satisfy our sinful desires. But number two, the solution for covetousness is contentment. And number three, we are to view desires and contentment through Christ-centered lenses. My friends, if there's one thing we should desire, it should be a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who has given of Himself so that we can be fully satisfied in Him. May this message challenge each one of us to be fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I admit that there are times I desire what someone else has, and I'm sure it is the same for those who are listening. Father, forgive us when we believe that having or attaining certain things will make us happier and more satisfied. Help us to find our contentment and satisfaction in you. Father, help us to identify our sinful desires, our insecurities, and know that the solution is to cultivate a heart of contentment. And may we always view our desires and contentment through the lenses of what you did for us. Father, I pray that Jesus Christ will be what we are fully satisfied in so that the world will see that followers of you need nothing else and they too will desire what we have. 
May you challenge each one of us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.